If you enjoy this episode of the Permaculture Podcast, become a member of the Patreon community. There you'll find weekly updates about what's happening behind the scenes of the show, exclusive discounts on consultation and meanderings, an invitation to the community Discord, and much more. Join today at patreon.com slash permaculturepodcast. This is the Permaculture Podcast. I'm Scott Mann. In today's interview, Dan Palmer of Making Permaculture Stronger and David Holmgren continue their conversation about David's design journey. In this episode, they discuss founding Holmgren Design in the 1980s, David's work as a professional designer and how that influenced his thoughts on permaculture over time, and the ideas that led to his authoring Permaculture, Principles and Pathways Beyond Sustainability, and Retro Suburbia. Throughout, they share more of how David's knowledge and understanding of reading the landscape developed and became central to his design process. As I share this interview with you, if you'd like to learn more about how to read the landscape, David and Dan are working on a film that demonstrates and teaches you David's methods of reading landscapes. To complete this film, they're looking to raise $35,000. As this podcast comes out in early August, they're at over $15,000 raised with less than a month to go. I see this video and the knowledge presented as vital to our toolbox if we're going to implement permaculture and regenerative agriculture on a broad scale, which is one of the reasons I personally supported this effort. You can find out more and back this project at readinglandscape.org. Enjoy this time with Dan and David, and I'll join you again after. 1983, I uh, started the business, registered a business name. I mean, there was probably a whole lot of things that were going on in my life, which I can also correlate with things that were happening in the wider world about getting serious, earn a, a living, uh, relationships, and also living in the city. But that work that I did in the consultancy, the primary work was actually advising and designing for people who were moving on to rural properties. I suppose what we would say is back to the land uh, stuff, or these days people would call it tree change. So that work fell into sort of two broad types. One was the one-day verbal on-site advisory, walking around a property and suggesting things with, with clients. And then there was a more limited amount of work where I was actually doing reports and plans so that there was the opportunity to reflect. I suppose I saw quite a lot of constraints on how to make a viable business in that, especially if your work wasn't focused on affluent people, but actually empowering people who are going to get go out and do these things anyway, often starting from scratch and often making big mistakes. And so it was really the combination of my own experience in that design work, but also seeing what a lot of people had done doing this process over more than a decade that was in informing uh, that design. And it was also, uh, by then, a very strong commitment to Victoria and southeastern Australia of landscapes and ecologies and design issues that I was familiar with. Yeah, I was going to ask, was, was that where all or the majority of your professional work happened? 
Uh, yeah, it was. I mean, there was occasional further afields, certainly into the dry Mediterranean country in South Australia and into New South Wales, Sydney region, but most of it was really uh, in Victoria. And permaculture was a new thing. So in a sense, you were defining the industry or you know, make, making it up as you went along. Yeah, well, of course, I had a lot of internal criticisms about what the movement was doing. And it was at a time of, of course, very strong backlash against alternative ideas. And I actually, when I set up the business, I uh, had mixed feelings about whether I would describe what I was doing as permaculture, (laughs) Uh, both from a strategic, how do I project this as a viable business, and my own sort of criticisms of of what I'd seen in the movement. And some of that was around design, you know, and design process, some of it around ideology. But I still felt it was the best framework for describing what I was doing. Mm -hmm. And that work was recognising that beyond people building a house, the, the most important things that they did in starting on a fresh site were usually earthworks and in southern Australia that always involved dams almost for water storage, issues of bushfire resistant design, where to put orchards, where to put gardens, what to do with larger areas of native bush, what to do about wildlife, grazing, so many things that for people coming from a a position of having gardening experience and then moving out onto a larger landscape. So there's sort of like a an educative coach sort of relationship, but having to do that within, you know, at the time, a budget of a few hundred dollars. Yeah, and, and you, you saw a lot of it was you'd walk in and you'd walk out within a day. Can you think of, you know, bring to mind an example just to sort of tell us about the kind of how you spent that time? Well, firstly, as that work consolidated around a Melbourne base and uh, then a few years after moving here to central Victoria, I firstly had a really good understanding of the landscapes. So people would ring me up and I'd work out where the property was and I'd get out the one to 25,000 contour map and you know, oh yeah, it's there, oh, it's on the granite country or, you know, like, you know, and then I, I knew what the tree species would be. And, you know, so there was a lot of that that I could find out about the land through a combination of prior information and then that rapid site assessment based on the reading landscape skills that I'd built up. But it was more the, who are these people and where they're at? And my big question in trying to get a bit of a brief and what are people on about and what do they want I used to tell people that they were their land's greatest asset and its greatest liability (laughs) to sort of emphasize I needed really to know about them not I didn't need to be sort of told so much about the land I mean that would be different on the odd occasions when I was working on a farm where people might be multi-generation on the land because then their knowledge of place is like 
you know, incredibly important. But in most of the, the work, you know, I could quickly see in just a quick visit things that even people who'd owned the land for a year or more didn't understand yeah. about it. So finding out where people were at and where possible with a couple always emphasising the importance of both parties being there <laughs> and using just techniques like people taking notes and recording what's said and encouraging people to have some sort of rudimentary sketch plan even if they didn't have a base map of what was there. And it was a lot easier to do that on open grazing land. Much more complicated when you're dealing with an old house with farmyards and bits of paddocks and all of those overlay of past actions, much, much more complex and, and difficult. So that ability to save people money, yeah, this is, this is the house site, you know, yes, you know, dam there, road here, orchard here. So I described it as that I was helping people with the skeleton within which they might develop permaculture, that I wasn't doing, you know, permaculture design in that sort of like landscape design sense. And the degree to which I got down to specification, it was often with some critical plant infrastructure like shelter belts and and species. But a lot of that work then also carried over into supervision of earthworks because you could justify spending maybe thousands of dollars in in a few days with heavy machinery. And especially if you're doing house site, road, dam, soil works like ripping, deep ripping for trees that you could justify being on site and do a whole lot more ad hoc design work with people as well through that process and you could combine that with if you had other labor on site with doing handwork finishing up on earthworks so there was and a lot of serendipitous sort of oh well we've got rock there or we can use that in this way or all of those things that you only necessarily discover as you start a process. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, yeah. You know that that whole um, approach excites me so much that like when it actually starts and you're crafting and, and making discoveries. Earlier when you're talking about it was it was harder when there was a lot of existing infrastructure, farmyards and old houses and stuff. That so that was one of the abilities I you were cultivating was the ability to sort of mentally delete um, superficial or things that could shift. Yeah, that balance with what is worth saving, what is needs through sort of frugality in terms of energy and materials conservation and respect for what exists, because anything that exists has some value, and yet not being boxed in where that's where the fences are, they're the rooms in the landscape. Not necessarily. And one of the things I used to say to people is it's fine to leave a fence in the landscape that's in the wrong position if it's a decent fence for the time being, but to plant rows of trees along it 
lock it into the landscape for maybe a hundred years. So that dance of how much you sort of work around those things, how much you can first see what is underneath, independent of the things that have overlaid. And so I spent, yeah, quite a lot of energy, I suppose, ignoring the things <laughs> that have been put on the landscape. But I remember a particular consultancy on a 10-acre property on the slopes of Mount Buninyong in Ballarat. And this was at the time that I was also doing broadacre research that led to trees on the treeless plains in the in the mid-80s. This property was basically two square paddocks surrounded by stone walls on steep slopes. And being on steep slopes, it's just automatically looking at everything in terms of contours. And But there were these stone walls that were 120 years old or so. And the top paddock had been ploughed in the past for potatoes growing up and down the slope. And the soil had moved and filled to the top of the stone wall. So there was like a terrace across the land. And then there were blackwoods growing out of these stone walls that might have been 50 years old. And here I am trying to impose my contour pattern. And it was there that I sort of realised, oh, no, this is like an old... English field landscape with square drains. What people have done on the land in recent times is so changed it and embedded in it. That's actually that rectilinear pattern. We should work with this. And once I did that, everything just fell into place. And of course, it's actually soils that are themselves highly resistant to erosion and uh, so a lot of the things that we associate with working water on the on the contour didn't apply. There was nowhere to put dams. It's completely free draining soil, but beautiful tree growing soil. And yeah, it was an example of yeah that more extreme end that we're not so familiar with in rural Australia, where what people have done since white settlement has actually not just changed the land in you know, degraded ways, but has added something in the land. And of course, we can see lots of places where there's a middle path where we say, no, that's that's really an asset. That's a, a beautiful thing that can be in, incorporated yeah. Yeah. rather than being dismissive of those past things. Because that dismissive nature I noticed was also something that owners do, you know, that people fall in love with a place and especially if it's a, place with a house and assets and then they start being really disparaging about what the past what the people did in the past <laughs> got to change or got to put our stamp on this place yeah yeah of avoiding those types of things i suppose with those small on-site advisory work there was the ability to sort of mentally use the land system stuff i'd learnt from Hakaitane, but it was mostly when doing larger farm consultancies where that came to the fore with actually mapping the land in that way and then seeing how that could work with, okay, you've got an existing land use that's often grazing 
where a tree is going to be added into that uh, yeah. landscape. Yeah, I remember walking, I think it was Yandoit Farm, and you were explaining that a little bit and some of the different factors that, that you'd use to distinguish the different land units. Yeah, it's, it's a subtle thing, and in some ways it's an art. It is possible you know, to use the, some formal mapping structures to say, okay, this is that land type that's recognised in the mapping systems. But it's also sometimes just particular to property where you can make relatively simple distinctions. But sometimes, yes, like Gandoit Farm, they're, they're quite complex and they're, they don't just reflect contours. You know, it's the underlying geology and movement of water through the underlying landscape, the hidden things that are shaping it as much as the, the form, as important as the form of the land is. And I mentioned the work with Trees on the Treeless Plains because that was a consultancy initially to a group project branch out, which was one of the precursors to the land care groups in, in central Victoria where the land care movement is one of the origin points, the land care movement. And I had this consultancy to look at revegetation strategies on the volcanic landscapes, which are the, the most intensively farmed, most treeless, uh, highest value agricultural land in central Victoria. And in that process of that research, I went down every road you could drive down on the volcanic landscapes and went through a whole, another phase of reading the landscape and upskilling in being able to identify over a hundred species of planted trees in the landscape. So using that, that skill to harvest more information and then doing sort of template designs for different land forms and different farm situations that involved tree fodder systems, uh, shelter belt design, farm forestry, which became the design manual Trees on the Treeless Plains, which was initially only a sort of 100 copies made as part of the consultancy process. And then later in the 90s, we actually published it as really a sort of permaculture design manual in disguise. Mm-hmm. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, great book. One of the things that's, as, as far as I know, is under underappreciated. Yeah. yeah, well, of course, it was part of what we were doing also with publishing of case study publishing rather than general books about general subjects. And, of course, there's a dearth of case study design because, well, there's only a limited number of people who think it's relevant yes. to them to, to look at. But that, that work did throw me back into a greater amount of work with conventional farmers. And in that context, I was the, the tree guy, you know, the, the tree expert, you know, designing tree systems and yeah, so rather than it being identified as permaculture, but of course I was always bringing that permaculture design lens to all of that work. I also remember when, when you looked at the contour map before walking around Yandoit Farm, just looking at the contour map, you, it was a s- simple example of that 
prior work with reading landscape, but you could tell from the contours what the geology was. If it drops off that steeply in that pattern after the flat, it's basalt and so on. And it seems like a lot of the value you were able to offer in these shorter consults, as well as the, the whole farm stuff, was things to you because of that past experience were no-brainers. You could see instantly, and it's like, well, the dam won't hold water there. It has to be somewhere over here. That to you are just so easy. I remember Morrison once talking about how he'd drive down someone's driveway, and by the time he arrived at the house, he had a whole lot of clarity about the suggestions. Yeah. A lot of that, of course, is because people are so disconnected from land, and it is different when people have a long familiarity with place and where that's multi-generational then there's sort of different sort of cultural issues that are more to the fore of like are trees for example even something that these people or this person would have a passion for and in what way what what are the the cultural context because yeah you've got other levels of knowledge. Oh, yeah, down that paddock, that fence line there. Yeah, down the the bottom end of that, that turns into real wet pug there. You know, but up here, it's, you know, a tractor would never get bogged in the winter. You know, so, you know, you've got knowledge, you know, that would take me going out and looking at that landscape in detail, walking it, you know, that someone's got that whole pattern of, of knowledge deeply Im- embedded So those are quite sort of different sorts of uh, situations of what is it you can offer in those situations is is different. And so there is a degree of specialisation there that my specialisation was really in tree systems and in earthworks design. Whereas on a lot of small rural properties... It was interesting, after building a house, the most complex thing people would do is set up an irrigation system. And it wasn't really a trade that did that. You know, you had plumbers at one end of the spectrum, and then you had irrigation engineers. And there was no one who designed and built small property irrigation systems. And, you know, they can be quite technically complicated and So, you know, that was another area that I moved into because there was no one doing it. In the same way that strategically, when I set up Holmgren Design, I decided I wasn't going to do house designs, even though I was as much an ecological builder as an ecological farmer. In fact, I'd, you know, already at that stage, you know, worked on several houses and designed and built a massive solar house you know on the south coast of new south wales and then in those early years of course we were developing meliodora from buying the land in 85 and so that was really the that biggest application mm-hmm. sort of building on what we'd done with the my mother's rural property now in a much sort of more compact context on a a one hectare property, but again, earthworks, reuse and, and movement of soil, house design, irrigation systems, tree systems, all of the interlocked parts, of course, became 
the greatest obsession and the greatest amount of design work I did on any project is really this place here. And I always saw it as being an example of my design work. I didn't want to be one of those architects who lived in a heritage house rather than a house that they'd designed. <laughs> but I used to say to people, look, I, I can help you with the skeleton framework within which you might develop permaculture, but I can't do what we have done here because you could never afford it <laughs> for a start. That time and that continuous engagement that was was possible here. And I guess not to mention that to take what you've done here and give it to someone else, it's not going to be the greatest fit. Like that. all those details really have to come out of individual engagement and reflect the people and the place and all yeah. the particular aspects of it. But there was in doing things here a lot at the beginning was actually applying what I was doing professionally and using, you know, here we had detailed contour information because the whole town had just been sewered and so there were publicly available mapping systems and, you know, I was able to do a lot of stuff on paper in great detail, you know, to the confusion of a local earth-moving contractor who'd never looked at a contour plan. and But also having that ability to, and that need to throw the plan away to not literally, but, you know, discovering, ah, there's reef rock that we assumed a D7 bulldozer can move. Oh, no, it can't. Oh, is that then a 20-ton excavator with a jackhammer, or do we actually change the design? And that sort of creative sort of response to situation that I was prepared to do in spite of having done very, very detailed work in, in that way. So it was also that further training, you know, that like doing small boreholes to see actually what, the full profile is before the bulldozer comes and digs the dam. So I was still in that process of learning and gaining that that expertise that I was then applying further afield. You started Hongren Design Services. You were doing advisory and design work for others, and then you started at Meliodora and, and continued to yeah. consult as well. Yes, and the... The key project that I did immediately after doing the earthworks in 86 here at Meliodora was the Common Ground Community, which was on over at Seymour on very fragile, erosion-prone landscapes. And, you know, I can remember sort of not quite reading them the Riot Act, but explaining that just because they had environmental sensibilities what they were doing in building this large community with a lot of people who would come with vehicles and all these buildings was a massive impact on a landscape that had only ever had a few sheep walk across it and a landscape that actually had tunnel erosion on it just from cycles of overgrazing and rabbit populations and that what we were going to do with earthworks and all of the use and intensity was 
massively greater impact. And that that working with contractors with many machines and having to gain the respect of old-timer rural contractors and who's the young you know, upstart from the city who's designed this. He's not even an engineer. And that, yeah, that working was a, a sort of a key project, the, the milestone for doing that. And again, it was actually working with an architect who was in a sort of a group design process with with buildings. So that was a, a very important sort of milestone in the work. And it again, it was large enough to allow me to be doing that process of there physically doing soil raking directing other people thinking further about the design consulting with the machine operators and creatively responding to building a a major dam spillway and discovering a massive gravel deposit that we then harvested with elevating scrapers to provide the road material for what's been a major and durable road in through that property over over all those uh, years since. I think that was really special project too because there were many different people involved in that uh, community that you're working with. So there was different skill sets that people could bring to the, the project. I'm curious, you've explained that for a long time you'd already had a distaste of any rigid split between designing and implementing and you'd learned the strategic planning with Haikai. And so like from when you started designing professionally, what changed or what did you learn over time? Like part of what I'm hearing is that, that you were able to take on more and more complex projects. Mm. But was there any kind of you know breakthroughs or I'm not getting that so far, it was more of a gaining more skill or mastery in the same kind of basic process approach? Or was there was there chapters or evolutions or mm. epiphanies along the way? Yeah, well, certainly that property at Mount Bunnyong that I described oh, yes. was was one of those that you know. No, I, I don't have to just the you know I, I can accept you know, what's been done on the land. There was also, of course, urban projects as well, and there was, I suppose, a developing conservatism in what I would be prepared to recommend recognizing that there's a difference between being an innovator experimenter especially in fields like tree crop planning aquaculture for which there wasn't standard practice so being more cautious about what one would recommend people do but also being surprised the other way of i had a a case here in the local area of doing a a one day at advice and I looked at this property and I said there's so many dam sites on this property it could be this amazing aquaculture system of all these you know dams down this valley and you know all this here and I thought oh yeah another couple of people from the city and that couple actually developed that property all of those ideas and beyond and became very significant in our local community here running a permaculture nursery for many years called Forever Growing and, you know, were leading figures in in spreading permaculture and their place was quite extraordinary. So that thing of underestimating what human potential or or commitment or interests can can be 
as well. So that balance both ways, I think. During this period of working in professional design, and I take it that over time your focus has moved slowly more and more to publishing and speaking education. But during that that period, how much how much design work were you doing? Was it was it full time? And yeah, look, it was only I would say the equivalent of a one third time job. I saw that in the early years there was pretty much a three way split in what one would consider a working life between doing things ourselves, primarily here, Meliodora, me as gardener, builder. So really the household economy, which involved design, of course, constantly, but that that wasn't professional or for money. And that there was one third of my time was writing, speaking, teaching, and contributing to the emerging permaculture uh, movement and voluntary work that a lot of it didn't involve design quite so much. Some of that did, but it was it was certainly not paid, a lot of that. And yeah, one third was actually professional work and most of that was was design work. So that meant I didn't do, you know, a huge number of consultancies and especially the ones that involved extensive reports and plans were, you know, often uh, just a, a few a year. So over the over the time, you might have done, what, what's the ballpark, 50, 70, 100? Good question because, um, you know, a lot of those um, on-site advisory ones don't have documented, you know, uh, they're just a sort of a, a sheet in a file, uh, you know, or in some notes or, or, or something. Yeah, I haven't looked at that, but it, it probably only would have been 30 of those a year at the peak. So there was larger consultancy projects, including at Ceres, uh, City Farm, a 10-year strategy plan for series in the late 80s uh, and then in the 90s uh, a plan for the long established Collingwood Children's Farm to sort of revamp or reshape that and there were consultancies for catchment authorities and things that mostly building on that trees on the treeless plains uh, work so yeah it was really Using that experience and then in the late 80s, I I was doing a little bit more teaching about permaculture. And of course, I was getting understandings of how permaculture design was being taught in permaculture design courses. And my understanding of that, that was that it was really people drawing from what they'd learnt from Mollison, who remembering that I didn't think he was sort of so much a designer, though he articulated, and especially in the designer's manual, quite a lot of interesting concepts around design and, and design process. But there certainly, certainly wasn't a sort of a, a clear design process in, in permaculture design teaching. And many teachers were drawing on landscape design, architecture, to a very limited extent, planning, but mostly landscape architecture design or landscape gardening design methods to sort of 
try and draw those together with with permaculture ideas. And in the uh, 1990, I think it was, I agreed to participate in for the first time in in teaching on a on a permaculture design course and started on that journey of both discovering what this first decade of permaculture design courses were about that lineage what it how it had expressed itself and taught with some of the more experienced permaculture teachers and started to sort of see how people were teaching design process at the same time that I was of course exploring how are people teaching permaculture ethics and design principles and so that design principles work was very important for me in the 90s that eventually led to uh, the book Principles and Pathways Beyond Sustainability a decade later. But I knew there was this huge jump between fundamental design principles and design process. And I felt I had a stab at trying to sort of teach that and explain that on permaculture design courses in the 90s, especially ones that we ran. But some people's reaction to that was that what I was teaching was advanced permaculture design. And the main distinction I was trying to introduce, apart from the land system stuff to understand that underlying patterns of the land, was the difference between the methods that are appropriate to larger scale landscape design versus site design. And so I was characterizing what people were learning as permaculture design as site design in the sense that architects and landscape architects thought about in in some limited context, a place where one is putting a building and the influences that are affecting that. Whereas once you looked at broad acre farms or intentional community design that is across landscape, that site design methodologies broke down. They had uh, real limitations. So I was trying to introduce those sort of landscape design and site design as a sort of ways of thinking about things. And of course, a lot of the work I'd done as a consultant actually informed how to do those site design processes and, you know, recognising the patterns of, okay, what comes before what and what has to all be done simultaneously and then what can fall out from that process and be left to later. So I was introducing a lot of the learnings I had from that, that process of doing professional design. But, of course, I was also at the same time de-emphasising on permaculture design courses, the idea, the sort of vaguely ridiculous idea that these courses were a training for people to be professional designers and more that design as a literacy that we use in our lives. And so whether that's, you know, designing your own garden or reviewing your living circumstances and and working out how maybe things can be rearranged or change direction in in some way and being able to use design thinking in that way so a lot of that was sort of stepping back and and looking at it in more fundamental design principles rather than here we're we're going to design landscapes for for people 
And did your work, did that impact other teachers? Did, did you feel like that made any kind of difference to, to what you'd seen previously and some of your concerns with what was being taught in his design process on PDCs? Yeah, I think it did with the people I, I worked with. But again, like consultancy, I was fairly slow and small solutions. We didn't do, you know, massive numbers of those courses in the 90s. We did one a year and uh, and we developed a team that we were working with. But I think a lot of that influence really didn't come about till after publication of Principles and Pathways Beyond Sustainability and also doing a lot more teaching both around Australia and internationally. So it was really a, a sort of a slow feed-in and small influences. And you were saying with the design principles, which have had a massive impact clearly on, on permaculture as a whole around the world, they were kind of a stepping back from what process you might use to design this particular place. Do you have a perspective on how that, uh, that gap is being bridged? Are people taking the principles and able to kind of translate those into different contexts from designing your own backyard to designing your life to... Yes, well, I think that's a very important story of how that has emerged more recently and could talk further about that. But there was, for me, a major step between that, that process and what also was happening in the 90s was the development of the Friars Forest eco-village. And that was, again, design and implementation, but in the role of being a developer and sort of managing project management and bringing together all of those skills that, that are developed, but also working in a team of people. So that really, in some ways, brought me face-to-face with all of the regulatory structures in a much more detailed way that I had avoided like the plague through most of my design work because I, I really wanted to work in that free creative area of the things that didn't require regulation. And to some extent, it's one of the reasons I sort of also got out of design work because a lot of those things like earthworks, dams and everything have become much more regulated and I can remember the day when the day dam, one megalitre dam built with the D7 bulldozer and cost $1,000 to build, turned into a $2,000 dam because now it needed an engineer to sign off on a whole lot of very basic paperwork things and that doubled the cost of building those dams. So certainly the ways in which regulatory structures both work to keep minimum standards at some sort of reasonable level, but also chop off all the creativity that can happen in any field and whether, you know, certainly in architecture and landscape design. Farming was one of the areas where there's still, until recently, an enormous amount of freedom both for better and worse, for farmers to do whatever they want with the land. And so that was a sort of a creative free space. But of course, in developing an eco-village with planning approval and all of those sorts of things, that became a much bigger part of what I was doing. 
but it was also the opportunity to see how the passions about sustainable forestry worked in a design sense and a community engagement sense and how people would learn and adopt some aspects that might be beyond what they were familiar with. This issue that I spoke of previously of of whether you can actually raise some design idea that people might think is a great idea, but they actually don't know anything about it. And the chances of that becoming a reality are often very, very low. So in some ways, I used to say that as a, a professional consultant, all you can do for clients is confirm something that they might already sort of half know themselves. If you're trying to introduce something that is completely foreign, it's almost certainly not not going to work. So I suppose in going back to design principles, I was really stepping back from that process of what we're doing to why are we doing it? And asking the more fundamental questions of, you know, why the issues of diversity, uh, why are small and slow solutions generally better than big and fast ones? And why do we need to be so obsessed with creating storages in the landscape, storages of water, storages of biomass, rather than things just relying on on throughput. Looking at those basic system design principles that we could see in natural systems and we could see underpinned all traditional cultures of place in the use of land resources, but were contradicted in the modern industrial world because I saw a lot of people going about things quite creatively and exploring all sorts of ideas and even using quite creative design methods but those more deeper questions seem to me you know more fundamental building blocks and of course the deepest ones of all are, are the ethical foundations so I really focused on that a lot but was intensely aware that those principles inevitably are abstractions just generalizations and they don't tell you much about how do we how do we get to that holy grail of some desirable outcome but i certainly saw i sort of couldn't tackle all those things simultaneously and do you do you see that as a a gap that's yet to be filled or? I think that's a process that's still emerging in in different ways. And I would definitely see your own work with making permaculture stronger is a, is a major contribution in that direction. And I think there are many factors at work that drive us in, in two different directions simultaneously. One is why are we here? What are the really fundamental questions of going back to those sort of basics and focusing on that? And the other, with chaotic, rapid, unfolding change of circumstances, 
almost a sense of appearing to abrogate design or planning or any forethought and just responding to what's coming over the hill at us. And so we're sort of pulled, in a sense, away from that solid space of some confident thinking ahead, planning ahead, knowing what's going to happen. And that does make it difficult to grasp for a lot of people, how does design apply? It's such a fundamental issue. It's something I scratch my head over a lot as things get more uncertain. And we're in a, I was just reflecting yesterday, we're in a position now with COVID and everything where the buffer we have as a culture is pretty thin right now. So mm. should another shock come down the line? And, and, and yeah, we're in a position where, I don't know, I don't know if the ideal is that we'd, we'd have a, a deep enough working literacy of, of design principles and processes so that we could ramp it up and default to that when shit gets crazy, as opposed to what probably will happen or is happening, which is people are just going to reach into the grab bag and, oh, we'll try this solution, we'll try this solution, we'll try this solution. I think that's exemplified to some extent by the the shift after the involvement with principles and pathways beyond sustainability and the teaching that came out of that, the lineage of work that led to retro suburbia, recognising that humanity was rolling into the multiple sort of civilizational scale crises, you know, the most notable that people can understand is climate change, but resource depletion and all of the other ones that are linked to all of these issues, including, of course, pandemics and financial system instabilities and breakdown, many, many others. As these processes unfold, it was really clear to me even in the 90s when I was teaching on design courses, that how we retrofit and adapt where people already live is going to be far more important than building new state-of-the-art eco-villages or creating the world anew. And whether that's grand visions of gleaming green cities or the landscape reformed, it's no longer you know, just pastoral landscapes. It's all of these amazing permaculture systems. No, no, that's not going to happen directly in that way because those processes, to the extent they will happen, will be happening in a process of chaotic, if not collapse, breakdown and change of systems that we've sort of directly or indirectly relied on. And so that adaption in situ and retrofitting what we already have was clearly more important in a strategic sense and also of what is realistic for people to do and what is effective. So because most Australians live in the suburbs, retrofitting those suburbs was sort of a priority. So that notion of moving from clean slate design to Every site has a history. Every site has something there. And recognising the good and the bad and the complex layers of that, where we are just a participant sort of tweaking or adding. That was also strategic in the sense of it bypassed a lot of the regulatory impediments because it's not big new developments. So sometimes it can be done under the radar and the consequences of mistakes are far less than in grand projects. The grand projects are always more likely to 
yes, they can achieve great things that it's hard to do in other contexts, but they also where the big mistakes happen. So I think that was part of my strategic thinking of how to deal with ongoing design in a context of crisis and, and chaotic change. And then the emphasis in retro suburbia on three fields of action, the built, the biological and the behavioural, that recognising also that, you know, there's limitations in the biological system. You can't fast track the growing seasons and, and the built environment, well, we might not have the the wealth and the capacity to knock it down, start again. Those limitations didn't apply to behavioural systems. And this sort of contradiction between is people's behaviour individually and collectively the hardest thing to change or is it the easiest thing to change? And it's sort of, of course, both, but increasingly moving to that realm of we can change the world mostly by changing ourselves because that's the most flexible system. And it's hard to project that sort of view of change, adaptation and design for, say, people living on the the Ganges Delta in Bangladesh, relying on what they can produce off the farm and remittances from family working in the Middle East, to say you need to be more creative or change your behaviour. Whereas in affluent Western countries, there's so much fat in the system. There's so many opportunities for that creative adaption that a lot of, I suppose, my focus of design has moved back into the, you know, the people side of things and, yeah, yeah. and how we facilitate that in a context of rapid and unpredictable change. Reminds of our mutual colleague, Joel Meadows' refrain about how often we default to a green solution or we'll design a better house or get more solar panels when so much of this is around human behaviour and management and the huge scope there to massively reduce consumption and and all that side of it. Yeah, and if you can take behaviour out of the the good, bad, moral judgement, right, wrong, and see it as a design problem and be able to stand back and look at one's situation and treat inappropriate behaviours as worn-out pair of shoes or (laughs) shoes that no longer fit or or were badly designed, you know, that we can get another behaviour that fits the situation. Yeah, (laughs) yeah. So in that sense, I think design thinking can help so much in breaking down a lot of those uh, sort of moral, emotional blocking points that, that happen when we try and look at, you know, the behavioural. Yeah, totally. No, I honestly hadn't appreciated, I don't know, the strategic brilliance of the approach in Metro Suburbia. How it's landing for me now, in a way, it's, it's supporting people to get things happening in a context where they need to do something. And along the way, discerning these different fields, biological, behavioural, and because they're retrofitting what's already there, like you're saying, it reduces the scope for huge mistakes. It also forces you to pay attention to what's already there because it's there and you're changing it. It avoids regulatory issues and 
as you start to move along, you're in, you're in a design process. Like, Continuous design yeah, process. Yeah. yeah, and by its very nature, it's a healthy process that's not a linear copied and pasted from landscape architecture approach. It's like a brilliant doorway into the space of, of that widespread design literacy as a core capacity that you talk about. I think it also helps deal with one of the, the problems of copying. As we know, every design situation is different and re- requires response to that situation. But the template and pattern of suburbia across whole suburbs and landscapes and, and especially you know where there's similar street layout and houses of similar age, there is literally that lower level by which people do things of, oh, look, they did that there, we can copy that. And there's more chance in those landscapes of that actually working. <laughs> Whereas in a, in a lot of rural contexts, and a lot of more complex organisational contexts, it's, it's very hard for those copies to work. So we recognise that, that a lot of people do do things that way and we all know as designers that, you know, that's not necessarily the best and the idea of how can we uniquely respond to a situation is, is important. But as people are into the baby steps of design. If we recognise design is a human literacy that is potentially represents some degree of evolutionary transformation, at least at the scale of literacy and numeracy, then that original vision I had in environmental design that our role is to not as expert designers, but people a little bit further down the track to enable everyone to see themselves as as a designer mm-hmm. and to find that power in that process, which is still, I think, a struggle for, for so many people. Mm-hmm. I've mentioned to you I'm taking a lot of inspiration from Carol Sanford um, lately, and I'd already sort of shifted from me being a design expert to me being a design process facilitator. And with some of the stuff I've been learning from here, I'm moving from even facilitation to education and being a resource, returning people back to their own lives and their own situations as a source of, of developing design process literacy. I think there are obviously so many sources that need to be brought in and recognising the influences of those to contribute to permaculture design. And it's Interesting, of course, with your recognition of the role of Christopher Alexander and, for me, Retro Suburbia was in a way written as a pattern language in a, or a stepping stone towards a pattern language of Retro Suburbia that we can see those sort of recurring solutions to recurring tensions or uh, dilemmas that are faced. I think many different ideas around the process of, of design can contribute to the, the strengths of permaculture. But for myself, the work on this property at Meliodora, I'm also being drawn back into a sort of a direct 
intuitive process where I'm like wandering in the landscape and inspired to do something. Sometimes things that have actually been effectively emerging for years, if not decades, and then suddenly I sort of like just act. (laughs) And I've just had that experience in the last two days, working, building leaky weirs in our public stream course with 60 hectare catchment behind it, a creek that's had in 2010 to have 100,000 tonnes of water come through it in 24 hours. So actually physically building something with my hands that's from what's in the place that needs to survive that sort of force and power and achieve things in relation to a progressively drying climate of rehydrating the landscape. So that process for me is involved more and more working with the absolute unique things that are in that place and where things lie and how they might be adjusted and that have also involved the social crossover with neighbours and talking to them about what they're doing on their land and literally resources, trees that need to come down for house construction that might become the bridge that they'll be able to walk over across the creek. So this sort of like emergent serendipity that doesn't actually really look like design at all. And I think that is a sort of an interesting process. To some degree, it's the freedom to play rather than work. But the degree to which that is a product of being a constant designer rather than just running around randomly doing things that that have completely unthought out consequences. Yeah, that's right. Such an interesting one. I've made that distinction between a generative process, generatively transforming spaces and and winging it, or the ram- random haphazard thing. And sometimes people can get a bit fuzzy on the on the distinction. But it's a, it's amazing to learn of your journey. And there was times when the processes were, you know, you could describe them as more kind of rational and hard and, you know, get the design right first to something that's a lot softer and more intuitive yeah. and emergent and consultative or integrative in terms of the community. But of course, it's not like that's the antithesis of a more structured approach. It benefits from it. Yeah, I, I mean, I do go back to that statement that's attributed to um, Eisenhower about planning being essential, but plans are useless. And I think that's nice because it comes from someone who is so hard-nosed, like out of the military, and constantly toying with the work to understand and and have vision to see what is not, to imagine and the force to be able to project and direct that and at the same time being open and vulnerable and participating as just a participant in a process. And, of course, those things are like constant. They appear to be complete contradictions of one another and maybe that's why the dance of of design is is so difficult in some ways because it plays with with all of those yeah okay david well this is this has been an incredible 
chance to hear about your experience with permaculture design process over the decades. And as we bring this to a close, it'd be wonderful to hear any closing thoughts or reflections from you. Yeah, well, I think not just because we're in a pandemic at the moment, but it because it's the culmination of expectations from the beginnings of permaculture about a world of unfolding crises and that design, that that is the context for design now, that the ability to imagine a place, a situation emerging to something different to what we see now is, of course, fundamental to design. And it's also the source of hope, not in a naive sense of fantasy, but without the power of imagination that depends, as Wendell Berry said, on affection for something and imagining it growing or transforming or evolving, then it's not possible to be effective designers. So designers do require, obviously, imagination, and that that's one of the greatest resources that design and especially permaculture can contribute in this time of of chaotic change. And I think that can be seen in the sort of friendly, adaptable, achievable changes that we've talked about in retro suburbia and in my Aussie Street story of, of showing how this happens in my imaginary street or more dramatically in, a, in the novel that we've just published by Linda Woodrow called 470, which is a, a cli-fi climate change science fiction, but has permaculture all threaded through it and showing how people adapt and change what they have when those crises hit. So in some ways, it brings design as actually central to response to crisis rather than it being a a peripheral luxury. It's actually the great strength that we can bring to situations of unprecedented surprise. And I think in small but diverse ways, that's actually sort of being shown up with the, the pandemic too, and whether that's household changing what they do and businesses changing what they do, moving from management and focus on just repeating cycles to know, oh, we have to go back to the drawing board. We have to redesign something. We have to retrofit something. That that is now the, the continuous action we'll be engaged with. And it can be incredibly empowering. And you see part of permaculture's potential is being able to resource others in terms of moving into that. Well, I think permaculture is still one of the strongest lineages in doing that from ad hoc, unfunded, 
development projects in third world villages where people are scratching what's around that we can use (laughs) to do some basic function to creatively thinking ahead, thinking about other contexts, because so much in permaculture for so many decades has been ignoring the current signals in the economy of how to do something that's proper and effective and saying, yeah, but how will this work in a world of less? How will this work in a climate changed world? And without having those answers, that discipline to be always thinking about the future, always thinking about emergent possibilities, both good and bad, or however we characterise them, I think permaculture can contribute a a great deal to that process. Beautiful. David Holmgren, thank you very much. You're welcome. And that was David Holmgren and Dan Palmer. Find out more about the development of David's demonstration site and other work at meliadora.com. You can dive deep into David's principles and pick up many of his books, including Retro Suburbia and the revised edition of Permaculture, Principles and Pathways, at permacultureprinciples.com. Dan and his always amazing work are at makingpermaculturestronger.net. After speaking with hundreds of guests over the years, and trading thousands of emails and phone calls with listeners to the show, every person I've been in contact with shared a unique story of how they discovered permaculture, learned design, and then implemented these ideas in their lives and in the landscape. I found it interesting in these interviews between Dan and David that, Even as a co-originator of permaculture, David's journey changed and developed so much over time, from those earliest days with Bill and developing the concepts that became permaculture, to deepening his design understanding in conversations and mentorship with Hakai Tane, the decades as a professional designer at Holmgren Design, and the implementation at his mother's property and Meliodora. Wherever we begin, and however our path changes, as students and teachers, advocates, and practitioners of permaculture, we can work together to learn more, deepen our connections, and create a world of verdant abundance. If there's any way I can help you on your design journey, or you'd like to discuss anything featured in this or any other episodes of the Permaculture Podcast, you can get in touch by calling or sending a text to 717-827-6266. You can email me, show at thepermaculturepodcast.com. Or if you prefer and would like to send a letter along with some support for the Summer to Fall fundraiser, my address is Scott Mann, 210 East Fairfax Street, number 300, Falls Church, Virginia, 22046. From here, the next episode is a conversation with my old friend Eric Perro, who updates us on how he's transitioned from natural building to biotech growing tens of thousands of kilos of chaga mushrooms in the forests of Finland. Until the next time our paths cross, spend each day exploring your design journey while taking care of Earth, yourself, and each other.